Today's episode of Art of the Cut is sponsored by ncrawl.com. ncrawl is the web-based platform for managing and rendering end credits, used by over 1,000 film productions, including 42 films at this year's Sundance 2020 Film Festival. Sign up today at ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Hello, and welcome to Art of the Cut's Voices from Sundance. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a film editor, and I interview my colleagues in film and TV. Today's voice from Sundance is editor Patrick Lawrence. Patrick is based in L.A. and has edited 11 feature films since 2014, including Clara's Ghost, which world premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. He's a Sundance veteran with four films that premiered here. Patrick also cuts TV like the show Bonding, which you can see on Netflix. Start off by telling me a little bit about this movie and uh, give give me a little synopsis. Yeah, Scare Me is about two strangers who meet each other on a trail in the Catskills, and it turns out they're both horror writers. So they get snowed in one night and decide that the way they're going to pass time is by telling scary stories. And so our main character, Fred, played by Josh Rubin, and our other main character, Fanny, played by Aya Cash, get into this back and forth to see who could tell the better scary story. And over the course of the film, as they become more and more dedicated to the stories they're telling, they be start the tales themselves begin coming to life on screen. And so we did all that practically. So there's a lot of shadow play and a lot of sound design that comes into that. But a lot of it is the actors themselves making the noises and making the shadows on the wall and, and performances and the way they twist their body. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's unique. It's unlike any film I've ever read. And then now seeing it fully finished on the screen, it's unlike any movie I've ever seen. Editors are always you know, talk about, about ourselves as storytellers. And so it's kind of a cool film for a storyteller to do about two storytellers. Right. Yeah. We're, we're calling it meta fictional, so like a fiction about people making fiction. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the sound design. Let's just start there. Right. We knew that the sound design was going to be an equal part of the, the post process than just editing. So editing was sort of getting it in the one place, but then the sound design was going to really help take over because what we were doing practically in the visuals, we equally had to do in the sound design. So while the actors themselves were making a lot of sounds on set, we knew that we were going to have to mix that with actual design. Um, in the edit, when you're having test audiences, you know that you have to put your best foot forward. So some of the stuff that we did was by pulling sounds that we knew we were going to need because we've got a story about a werewolf. We've got a creepy grandpa where Ayakash basically transforms herself into this old Hungarian man. Uh, then we've got a, a, a troll story. And then um, our big story at the end of the film is this demonic American idol. So uh, we have Ayakash's voice is is kind of changing in modulation and getting high and then getting very demonic. And then we've got Josh Rubin's character who uh, basically plays a devil. And so he's got a very gravelly demonic voice as well. And so they could only do so much on set in production, but it was still convincing. But when you want to sell that in your test screenings, we knew we were going to have to do things like, uh, dynamic link over to audition and, and mess with the modulation and the tones of some sound effects and then link them back over. So that made a nice little seamless, uh, uh, seamless effect in the workflow that we were able to get in and get out and do those things. Um, and then in terms of other just temp sound design, because you're working with a werewolf story, you know, you have to have, you know, the growling and the, 
the breathing and all of that. So those, those, we just kind of found the right, the right tones and then added those in. So you mentioned the fact that you've got a bunch of stories, maybe five stories, five horror stories, more than that. I believe we have, yeah, five stories throughout the film. We've got uh, the werewolf, creepy grandpa. There's a troll story. And then Chris Red's character comes in about midway through the movie and he's got a really good he's got a really good moment where he just makes up a story on the spot uh, that always gets a laugh that involves like uh, finding a driver on the side of the road and then and then uh, using a silencer and posing a Zodiac. And it was just it just went down. You could sit there and watch it for 10 minutes. But we were new. It was like this needs to be more like 20 seconds. <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? Um, and then once he gets once he gets introduced, then. Um, there's a few other stories that happen. Um, there's a story based on, uh, one of Fanny's novels called Venus. And then, and then, um, our big story at the end is this, uh, uh, Satan singer story, which is like American idol, but like run by the devil. With those multiple stories and with the character, it sounds like maybe landed right in the middle. Talk to me about how you structured it. And maybe even though you're editing individual scenes, you, when you saw the whole thing, you're like, uh, this I thought this was great, but this story has got to be, you know, we got to cut this story down by two minutes or something. Right. The first, the first thing I did in approach was going through and doing all of the scenes that I knew were pretty standard. So the opening of the film has a couple just very basic introductory scenes that are dialogue heavy, um, introducing the character of Fred, introducing Fanny. And those were my first approach because those are the things I'm most familiar with. I can just go through and knock those out. And then we have a couple interlude scenes as well. So doing those right away also helped. But then getting into the first story, which was Werewolf, I found right away that any angle of the story could be played in a one if you wanted it to. Because I'm a minimalist at heart, so I think that like if you can do something in one take instead of or one cut instead of three cuts, that's the way to go. Uh, just keep it simple. And so when I'm watching this, uh, Josh's performance on the werewolf story, he goes up to the balcony and he, and, and I don't think Aya cash was on set that day. So they just dedicated the angle solely to him on this balcony. And he played this whole story out in one take. And it was so inspiring that I just wanted to live in it but I knew I couldn't. And so that started to make me second guess myself, which just doesn't, doesn't always happen when I'm doing a first cut. I like to believe that like, it's sort of the best representation of what they have from production. But I started putting that doubt in my head. So I knew that there might not be, it might not be the best it can be until I get Josh in the room. So I called him up and told him that I, just to give him a heads up to like, Hey, I think when we get in together, that's when this thing's really going to shine. And, and sure enough, like once I got him in there and I was able to bring his experience and his influence, uh, combined with what I had done in the first cut, it really started to take shape. But, uh, what I would do was I would just sort of lay out the finer points when doing a story. I would just start to kind of lay out what all the beats were because sometimes we would have very specific angles. So, if there was a sh- if there's there's a line in the movie where Aya's creepy grandpa throws himself and starts vomiting, so we have a low end angle that's looking down at him. So I knew that very specifically is going to be that angle, and then she talks about 
there's there's the dog rover that goes over the corner and she's making all of the dog noises off screen but i've got a shot that's just the corner it's just a static shot of the corner so it's like i had to imagine it's like okay if i add her making these disgusting dog sounds off camera and you're just sitting in the static shot of this corner the viewer will accept that like the dog is there and it's happening. <laughs> and so it's like a mix of that and then playing off of Fred's reactions that help sell that even though we're never leaving the inside of the cabin and we're not really seeing the things that they're talking about, like we don't really ever see the werewolf. We don't see the grandpa. You just start to follow along and you're tracking with the story, even though it's all shadow play. Did they shoot in order, or were you were you not editing until after production was finished? No, actually, they didn't hire me until afterwards because they they really jumped in with production just to get that made, and so then they took some time to raise money in order to do post production. And one of the brilliant things they did was, I believe, our director of photography, Brendan H. Banks, made a sizzle to help sell the concept of the movie so they could raise more money. And I was contacted by our producer, Alex Bach at irony point. And she sent me the script and the sizzle. And the first thing I did was watch the sizzle and the opening scene of the sizzle is Josh's character, Fred sitting at the dinner table, poking around at his TV dinner. And he just pauses right in the middle of it and turns his head and looks at the cellar door and the camera starts dialing in on the cellar door and you hear boom, boom, Boom. And then all of a sudden the camera turns around and you see Josh just sitting there at the table going boom, boom, <laughs> boom. And that's all I needed to see to sell me on this movie. And it was also great because I could see Aya Cash, who I adore, and Chris Red from Saturday Night Live, who I equally am obsessed with. And I was like, okay, I got to be a part of this. And when I actually read the script, I read it real quickly in just a couple hours, which is good timing for me. <laughs> and, uh, and I just knew it's like I had to do it. And that, that was the selling point. So your question about did they shoot out of order? They did. Because um, being that it was a low-budget production, you had to rely on your actor schedules. Like Chris Redd being on Saturday Night Live, he's only available for a couple days. And But to and you so, as an editor, it didn't matter whether they no, shot No, it didn't order. matter. I got it all in one piece. And so, it, and so my assistant editor, Jordan Thomas, he went in and organized everything for me by scene. Um, you know, using Premiere, I used Freeform View which is a huge help because it just organizes everything in a way where my scenes are mapped out and I can see all my angles. So whereas before I would have to go through and watch all the footage and start to paint the picture of what it's going to play out in my mind with freeform view, I can see everything and then know what angles I have at my disposal before I even get into the scene. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with scare me editor, Patrick Lawrence. I'm really excited to have end crawl as a sponsor. If you've ever been through the end credits process in Final Post, you already know why someone had to create this product. What's interesting, though, is how they went about it. Their cloud render engine turns around preview renders in minutes and 2K and 4K renders in about half an hour. The Ncrawl render engine is on demand 24-7, so even if you're in a late-night editing session, you can sign into your project, fix that typo, and add that late-breaking special thanks, and with one click, get your new render fast. And here's the best part, renders are unlimited. Ncrawl has a freemium tier and they offer free personal demo projects to all working industry professionals. Right now there's actually a wait list, but if you sign up now with our special link, you can jump to the front of the line. That's ncrawl.com AOTC. Again, that's ncrawl.com AOTC. 
talk to me about the difference that you're allowed as an editor when you're able to cut in order. Did you cut in, in well, you said you didn't really cut in order, kind of, but you chose like the scenes that you needed to get into right. first. That's yeah. a that's a huge luxury because normally you, you day one, all right, three impossibly hard scenes, right. and you got to cut them. Yeah, for instance, right now I'm working on um, my Netflix show Bonding. We're in season two, and I only get a couple of scenes a day. And so the luxury of that is, is that if I get two or three scenes a day, I can sit there and really focus on those scenes. Whereas if you have a little bit more of a rush schedule, you don't always have that luxury. So with scare me and when I have everything kind of given to me in one lump sum, I can start at the beginning and start to kind of feel out the narrative of the film, like the introduction of Fred and then the introduction of Fanny and then what gets us to the cabin and the power going out. And then up until the point where they start the first story. And then that's the werewolf story. The werewolf story, which is our first story in the film, was the first story that I worked on. But as, as I started to become overwhelmed by a couple things, I, I find that it's best to just walk away and take a break. So it, it's either you go for a walk or you go and work on another project for a day or a couple hours. Just clear your mind and then you have a new approach. But what scare me, it would be, let's just jump into a different story. So it's like if I would hit a wall with Werewolf, I'd go work on the grandpa story. And then if I hit a wall with that, I might go work on the troll story. And then just just start building all the pieces together so I can get from point A to point B. And then go back once I had my blueprint mapped out. Then go back and start working on all the all the the specials and the coverage and all the, all the little things I need to fill it out. Or maybe the reactions that I need to really help sell. Because like I said, like especially when uh, Fanny's character who is dominant throughout the film. She's very intimidating to Fred. And it's very important that you play out a lot of Fred's reactions to what she's doing because he's intimidated by her storytelling, her ability. And that's, and, and that's really the, at the core what the film is about. It's about, uh, you know, male and female acceptance and, him not, you know, there's a, there's a masculine quality to it that he isn't, he doesn't fully believe that she could be a good writer. And it's shown throughout the film that like, she's a much better writer than he is. And, and I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but it's sort of the climax of the film is that like, um, he is very jealous of her as they're going throughout the film. And that leads us to the climax, which takes on, which is where we really get into the horror side of the film up front you felt like there was a place where instead of being on the person who's talking, the reaction shots are much more revealing to yeah. the character. Yeah. I, I've found success in comedy by my reactions. I think that is where a lot of the comedy lies. You'll have your delivery, but then it's about the pause. It's about how the other character reacts. That's where you really get the laugh in. Uh, and with scare me, it was equally important because we've got um, <clears throat> the seed that we're planting throughout the movie is that Fanny has written this very popular science fiction novel and Fred is familiar with it, but he's never read it. So throughout the whole movie, he keeps trying to get her to tell the story of her book and she keeps putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then finally in the middle of the movie, we get that story. Now, uh, what you would do is play how Fred is reacting to seeing how passionate she is and how good of a storyteller she is and how it's demeaning and how it's, how it's bringing him down. 
Um, but we had a technical issue, which was in our test screenings, that scene was the problematic one. And with Scare Me, we've got a film that takes place over the course of one night, and it's almost in real time because the stories are all happening consecutively. So if we have a problematic scene, we can't just lift that out of the movie because now it's, it's, it's taking a huge chunk of the narrative out of it. And another problem that I had was uh, we introduced Chris Red's character around that time in the movie, and it would be losing a big chunk of his performance. So when we were getting some of this feedback, we were like, how do we approach this? And so Josh and I, our, our beautiful collaboration together, we decided that we needed to use a, a plot point in the movie to help motivate a new version of the film. And so without giving too much away, our characters uh, do a little cocaine before one of the stories. And so we decided to use that to motivate faster cuts and so we took the Venus story, which was originally an 11-minute-long story, and cut it down to less than two minutes. And and the way I compared it was, I said, like, you know, if you're watching Community and there's a scene where, like, Troy and Abed are trying to recap the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, you know what the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark is, so you would just use a bunch of cross-dissolves and funny music, and you would just emphasize the bigger, more exaggerated points of the story. And that's exactly what... Chris Redd and Aya Cash were doing in their performance because the whole tale of Venus is sort of told from the POV of Fred sitting in a chair, watching them act it out in front of them, but it's just, they're running around and they're on the balcony. And then there's, you know, little uh, practical effects here and there that are happening in sound design. And so if we can't do that in 11 minutes, we just got to do it in sort of a, a very simple montage. So in the film, it's a nonlinear montage that just is sort of bouncing all over the place. So that way, we could play up the idea that as Fred has been wanting to know what the story of Venus is throughout the whole movie, that we, the audience still don't know what it is even after we see them tell it. So it's just sort of like, Oh, okay. So Venus remains a mystery throughout the story. Yeah. Which is probably fine. I'm sure. Right. That's we got an amazing, re- it actually came up in our Q and a the other night and, um, and people were saying how much they really, really enjoyed the way that scene was cut together. Um, and Aya Cash, even on stage, turned to me and said how much she loved it. And it was not what was intended, but it was what we had to do because the the script was 90 pages. And so by thumb, you think, well, it's going to be a 90-minute film. But the first cut of the film was actually two hours and 10 minutes. And Josh and I both knew that we can't just simply lift uh, 40 minutes out of this movie. It's not going to happen. So we had to come to the realization that like maybe it's not a 90 minute film maybe it's 105 minutes or it's 110 minutes and so then we just went through and started really trying to eliminate lines that we think we could get away with which as a testament to josh and his writing he had to kill a lot of his darlings to do that because there's a lot of really great work in these stories that we had to start looking at and going what lines can we lose that won't affect the narratives of each story, not just the narrative of the film itself, but just the narratives of each little scary story that would still allow the audience to track with it. Even if we eliminated a bunch of lines, we had to do that in the, in the grandpa story, which I, Cash's performance was just a powerhouse. She just dominates the film when she takes over. Cause that's her first story in the film. So we see Fred act out the werewolf story and then she comes in and she's like, okay, now I'm going to top you. I'm going to show you who's boss. Yeah. And she totally kills it. And so that was hard. We were like, how do we like, 
her performance is so amazing. How do we just take lines out of this, you know? And so that, that became a task to really go through and be picky and make sure that we weren't eliminating thing that was going to lose the audience. How did you make, how did you help the director make those determinations? Cause those are hard. Did the director write it? Yeah. Yeah. Josh Rubin right, was so a writer and director on it. That's a hard thing to do when a writer is yeah. a director. So talk to me about just walking that fine line with the director and trying to do what you need to do as an editor, but also support the director and right. know that you need to cut out so much time. Right. A lot of times my, my stance is always, I try to free myself from anything that happened in production. I try to free myself from the script as much as possible because I learned very early on that it's like I could read a script and then get the footage and the movie that I saw in my mind in the script is not the footage that I'm receiving. And then I'm like, well, I'm just back to square one anyway. So, so I started separating myself. I'd read the scripture. So I got the story, but then I would, I would just try to distance myself from anything that happened during production. So I try to be objective in that sense, always in post, but as you become more and more attached to something, it becomes harder and it becomes a struggle. Um, especially when new opinions are coming in, whether it's your producer or your, your test audiences or whatever, you know, I get these notes and I'm like, I feel like they just watched it with one eye open. They didn't necessarily see what's actually going on there with Josh. What was great was that I think from his experience, because he's done a lot of work with college humor and doing some television stuff and commercial directing that he knew better. And he knew that like, okay, we just need to roll up our sleeves and like, and just eliminate what needs to be eliminated. But he listened to me and he was open to my opinion. And so even if it was something that maybe he hadn't thought of that I was looking at going, you know, we really, do we really need that section? I might pose it as a question to him just so he could think about it because, because if I just straight up tell him like, Hey, we should lose that. It might make him doubt what we do. But if I put the question in his head, then he starts to question and then he starts to think about it. Yeah, maybe we don't need that. And so that helps sort of get it along the way. But all I can do really is just offer up suggestions because at the end of the day, the director's either going to listen to me or they're not, but I could at least try to kind of steer them in a direction that I think is helping. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's just sort of the nature of it is that if a director is going to have a vision, they're going to want to see it a certain way. And so you just have to kind of get your, um, you have to get your thoughts and ideas and your suggestions in wherever you can and see what, see how they respond to it. Did you ever try to do like a slash and burn version where you, you just tried to cut it to the bone or was that not part of your methodology on this film? No, not really. Um, you know, the film right now it runs 110 minutes and just, uh, you know, a big chunk of that is making sure that we're living in the stories as much as we can. Um, we did eliminate a lot of stuff that there was just a lot of really great stuff in every scene that um, maybe if we had one less story, those things could have lived in the movie, but because we just, we couldn't li- we couldn't take out an entire story. There was no way. So all the stories had to remain in place in some form. So the best way to do that was just to go in and try to eliminate the fat. I did um, on two different movies and I just talked to an uh, editor yesterday that they did this slash and burn technique where you've got a two hour and 35 minute assembly maybe. And you know, it's some, you know, you've cut down somewhat maybe, but then you just say, I'm going to make this a hundred, you know, 95 minutes. I'm going to see if I can get it down to 95 minutes and you just do it. And then you realize that you're not going to keep it at 95, but it teaches you 
what really like oh man i really miss this or i really we really couldn't take that out i never would have thought we could take that out but it it came out and then the film ends up 15 minutes longer than that slash and burn but it teaches you a lot right yeah it's funny you mentioned that because there's a technique in what you just said that i use a lot and i shouldn't give away all my tricks but oh come on come on that's what this is for <laughs> but uh one of the things when you're working with directors every single one of them is different and so you either have the full trust of your director who's interested in collaborating with you or you might be working with somebody who only wants to see their vision and i'm not a button pusher so so i'm i'm i try to make it clear that it's like if you like what i do and you want to hire me for that then know that like i'm here to help you and i'm never out to make a bad movie. I'm going to give you every piece of advice or every piece of knowledge that I have to help you make your movie great. But occasionally you might get a note or a suggestion that you just know is going to be wrong. And I could sit here and talk to him blue, blue in my face to tell the director, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You absolutely don't but want to do that. It's not going to help. And it's not going to help. And so sometimes, you know, when it's a losing battle, the best thing you can do is to take it away and show them. But to your point, what you're saying Sometimes I will do that and I won't bring it up for like a couple cuts and then come back and go, you know, I really missed that scene where we introduced so-and-so like, I really think that that's worth taking another look at. And then when they're apart from it for a while, all of a sudden they're interested in looking at that again. And even if you can bring it back, if it was a timing issue or whatever, but it's like, if you can bring it back in any sort of form, if it's something that helps fulfill the narrative a little bit or a character's development, it's worth looking at. And, and usually when they're away from it, they can look at it through fresh eyes and accept it. Um, with this film, we just knew like, we just knew we had to get it down in a certain way while still maintaining our characters and the story and the overall arc of the film. Talk to me about horror music. <laughs> what did you attempt <laughs> with and, and what was the music in this? Yeah. The crazy thing about this film is it's a blur of genres. It's comedy and horror. And, and at any time in the movie, you might think like, am, am I supposed to be laughing at this or am I supposed to be terrified? Um, and as an editor, it just kind of speaks to like, just trying to be versatile, just having a lot of experience bouncing back and forth between genres. And like, that's what I love. We were talking about Jeff Groth. It's like, he came from comedy and made a very serious dramatic film and it was gorgeous and it, and it was incredible. So being able to sort of blur genres like that, I think is, is an amazing talent for an editor. And here we're doing it in a movie where just scene by scene, it's either straight comedy or it's horror. And so what we did was we pulled from, we had influences that we pulled from that a lot were eighties based, a lot of shining Beetlejuice, um, and poltergeist. And so we used some like John Williams score and, uh, and, uh, and and other sort of familiar pieces from that era to help bring things in and sort of like set us on the right track, and uh, that really helped. And so and so our composers, uh, Chris and Phil, like they were able to take that and then put their own spin on it. But yeah, that was it. Just finding those influences that you like living in, and that whatever certain tone. Another another big one. Josh really liked the score from Drag Me to Hell, and so that was a big part of it. So it was Drag Me to Hell and Poltergeist and Insidious, uh, who I think is is all um, at least those two movies are the same uh, composer, and I think John Williams did Poltergeist. Um, but um, but yeah, that was sort of the well that we pulled from, and uh, it really helped sell it in the in the test screenings because 
all of our test screens went very well, which is what helped move the post-production along. And uh, that speaks to the music that we use, I think. I'm sorry that I'm not wearing my T-shirt that I was wearing yesterday, which I, I made for my crew on the last movie, which had the Ten Commandments of film editing. And one of them was, Tempt not with John Williams. He composes not for thee. So, <laughs> <laughs> you broke one of the critical yeah. commandments. Well, there's actually, there's actually in the werewolf story, there's a reference to Poltergeist. So it was just sort of like a go-to. It's like, well, we have to use the Poltergeist <laughs> soundtrack for that. So That's perfect. I love it. Uh, rules are meant to be broken, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you have to. I don't know about commandments, but rules. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've broken every editing rule there is. So it's just a part of the job. I love it. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you, Steve. Great conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Art of the Cuts Voices from Sundance podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. And be sure to check out my podcast of interviews with some of the world's top editors on my regular Art of the Cut podcast. Thanks again to my guest, Benjamin Moses-Smith. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>